My name is Christian Wall. I am a deacon here and an elder candidate. And uh, as you just heard, we're in our sermon series called Gospel Traits, that subtitle, Eternal Living in the Everyday Life. The series on gospel traits, um, the series is talking about uh, the traits that define us as Christians, that define us as a church, as God's people. Um, and I really like it because it has to do with everything that, uh, that we study the Bible for, everything that we disciple toward, um, is that hopefully we will start to display these gospel traits in our lives. Uh, because our experiences in our lives affect us. And there are some experiences that, uh, that we share, that I share with some of you, um, but there are others of you in this room that have experienced way more than I have. And it affects how you live. It affects the traits that you display in your life, that all of our experiences affect how we live. And however different we might be, um, all of us in this room, if we are born again, regenerated Christians, um, we have one experience in common, that we went at one time from being dead in our trespasses to now being alive together with Christ and being saved by grace. And that's a big experience. Naturally, it's going to impact the way that we live. And so all of us have a few traits in common, and that's what the series is about, these gospel traits, traits that are specific, specifically about the salvation that we have received, the new life that we've been given, okay? So even though we are different people, we do have the shared experience that unites us. And the trait that we're talking about today in God's people is holiness. And holiness is a, is a big word. <clears throat> so big, we don't really use it very often. We don't use it from day to day. We don't use it to describe anything else in our lives except for God, really because holiness really has directly to do with God. It describes something that is divine. Something that's holy is divine, it is sacred, it's good, it is righteous, and it's pure, right? And we don't encounter a lot of things in our everyday life that we would describe as being holy. Something that's holy really just relates to God. It's his word, it really just belongs to him. And, uh, Today, we're talking about how we are supposed to be holy. And when we talk about God, sometimes, especially in popular culture, they try to make him not holy. They try to make him common and profane, just the same way as any of us. They try to bring him down to our level. Um, you'll see him in cartoons portrayed as an old man on a cloud with a big white beard who zaps people with lightning, and he's a little bit silly. Um, or he's no more than a man kind of like us, uh, but with superpowers. He's just an enhanced being. Um, we know that that's not true. Uh, there's a famous quote you may have heard from this Russian cosmonaut. His name was Yuri Gagarin, one of the first guys to get up into space. Uh, he, he says, I see no God up here, once, once he gets into outer space. Um, I was happy to find out that was a misquote. He didn't actually say that, um, that it was actually uh, propaganda from the Soviets at the time. Um, but not knowing that, C.S. Lewis responded to that idea, that idea that if we achieve this thing and get into space, that we'll see God there. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that that would be like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle looking for Shakespeare. Shakespeare does not exist within the story of Hamlet, but he is all over the story of Hamlet because he made it. 
So God, in the same way, made everything that we see around us, and though we may not be able to get into space to find him or find him under the stage or something like that, he is all around us. His fingerprints are all over everything that he has made. That's just how outside the realm of our understanding God is, right? To, to know that there's a being that has always existed and one that will always exist, that he created everything in the known universe, and not just the substantial stuff, uh, but also the invisible principles that guide it, the math and the science and the physics of it. He created all of that. It was his idea and his creation. Um, he created all of that, not with his hands, but with the word of his mouth. I don't get it. That doesn't make sense to me in my mind. I can't wrap my brain around it. Um, and the fact that he's, he is present here in this moment as much as we are, um, this is the only place I can be in time is I can be here. Um, and even as I said here, that moment is long gone now. Uh, but he is present in that moment too. And he's present at the beginning of time and he's just as present at the end of time. And he's just as present at the beginning of the sermon as he is standing right now waiting for us at the end of the sermon. Crazy, I can't, I can't wrap my brain around it, but we have this word holy to describe that transcendent nature of who God is. When we encounter God in our space, when he does come into our space, those spaces are called holy. So, for example, Moses encounters God in the burning bush. The first thing that God says to him is, Moses, take off your sandals. You are standing on holy ground. That ground around the presence of God is holy. And Moses' sandals, covered in animal waste and dirt, they don't belong in God's presence. They're not pure. They're not clean. You've got to take those away. Um, when God came down and dwelt with the people and he gave instructions to Moses on his dwelling place, his temple, uh, there were uh, volumes of the space that were called holy, but there was a central space where the presence of God really was that was called the most holy place. And in that space, priests would go and the garments that they wore and the instruments that they used were called holy and they were called pure. And the priests themselves Though you might find a lot of laws in the Old Testament, there were some that were reserved specifically for the priests because they were called to the highest standard of purity in Israel. They were called most holy. And if they weren't, if they had sin or they were impure or unclean, they lose that holiness. It also describes days. So there are a lot of feast days and a lot of sacred days in the Bible. Um, we are commanded to uh, remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. That's today. Today is our holy day. It's a day set apart, and it's sacred. It describes the highest level of moral and physical purity and cleanliness. So one last example, when Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah famously in chapter 6 of Isaiah, <clears throat> has his experience of the throne room of God, he had a response to the holiness that he saw. He saw the pillars shaking. He saw the robe filling the room, the smoke, the earthquake, uh, the, the glory and the might of God, and these strange beasts with many wings and many eyes singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Isaiah's experience was not, wow, that's cool. His experience was, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That should be our response to the holiness of God. 
woe, fear, trembling. Uh, and Isaiah's right. He is right in everything that he said. So with all that understanding of who God is and how holy he is, if we understand that rightly, that should make us kind of wonder, how then are we supposed to be holy? Because we are so unlike God. We are not morally righteous like God is. We are not transcendently powerful like God is. And we are not physically pure the way that God is physically pure. And while we're at it, is holiness technically something that we do? Is it a practice or is it something that we are? God, for instance, just is holy. Doesn't have to practice holiness to be holy. But to answer those questions, let's dive right into our scripture. So we're starting in Ephesians 5. I'll just do verses 1 and 2 for now. Let's see what it says. So in verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So that's my first point. If you would like to be holy, imitate God, your Father. We're wondering how we ought to be holy. This is the first helpful tip that we have. The first principle that we have is just to be like God. Be like God. His character and his values and the heart that God has revealed in his scripture, we need to just make those ours. All of scripture is, is our helpful tool to get to these things. We have his law. His law that is found in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all of that, not just the Ten Commandments, but the other 260 plus commandments in the Old Testament, all of those are just, they're not made up by someone beyond God because there is no one. God just wrote them down. It's just a portrait of who he is, of what his values are, recorded as commandments for us. His wisdom. His wisdom can be found in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. These are all rules and properties that God has sown into the natural world around us because he created it all. His fingerprint is on all of it. Naturally, there are some properties and some standards that you'll find all over the world in your work, in your family, in, uh, in all areas of life. And those books that I listed are good uh, places to find those things. God's character is the very path to holiness. It's the path to our holiness. So just like the scripture phrased it, we must consider who we imitate because we'll, cons we'll imitate a lot of people in our lives, our friends and our family, um, our own fathers, our own mothers, our, uh, our co-workers and movie stars and stuff like that. Uh, but we've got to be careful, be careful who we imitate and why we imitate them. And not only that, not just to imitate him, but it says as beloved children, We've got to consider who our father is. So, all of that stuff sounds nice, um, and all of what I just said is a lot easier said than done. It's very easy to just say, yeah, be like God. Um, but as soon as we try to start doing that, until we start uh, working towards this holiness, we're going to run into trouble. We're going to have some problems because... Um, it's very difficult for us because we will get it wrong. And I asked that question a moment ago, is holiness something that we do or is it something that we are? And I wanna spend some time on that who we are portion. So even though that scripture gives us work to perform 
and the whole rest of the Bible gives us work to perform as well. It also made some bold statements saying that we are beloved children, right? It says that Christ became a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God on our behalf. It did not say Christ will become a fragrant offering if we are holy enough. That's not what it says. It says now. If we are regenerated Christians, we are holy right now because we have the imputed righteousness of Christ on us because of his sacrifice. This is not the only, there's, it's all over the Bible. Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, it phrases it that we are considered holy and blameless before God. And not because of our action, not because of the stuff that we've done. Uh, we're not going to start boasting in our holiness. We're boasting only in the holiness of Christ that's been imputed to us and placed on us. So even though we have sinned, and I know we have sin in this room, that we have people that sinned yesterday, last night, this morning, I can still, with a clean conscience, say, if you are a born-again Christian, you're holy right now. Even though you might not think so. Even though you might think, no, I know who I really am. No. Right now, the scripture says, and it does not lie, that you are considered holy and blameless. So even though God looks to us and he should see that sin, instead, he sees his son, right? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He sees Christ. And when the God of the universe senses us, he smells a sweet fragrance, a fragrant offering and sacrifice before him. And we have to know this. This sermon is about joyful obedience. We want to be joyfully obedient to God, not, not dutiful, right? We don't want to uh, be fearful and cowardly before God. We want to live lives of joyful obedience. This principle, we've got to understand this. <clears throat> Specifically because um, I've got another scripture that helps to flesh this idea out. But if we're going to live lives of joyful obedience, that's going to require confession and repentance. That's going to require going into God's presence. And not like confession and repentance and then also petitionary prayer, asking God for things. All these different things. We're going into the presence of God to ask for these things. So are we going cowardly and timidly? Are we going boldly the way that he told us to. If we're going to do that, then we've got to understand this principle. So like in Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, Micah says, he gets it, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. That heart that the prophet Micah has there is one of complete assurance of the character of God. Boldness. He says there, I have sinned. But he also says, when I fall, I will rise. He is absolutely certain that God will vindicate him, that he will love him, that he will purify him. There's another place in 1 Peter, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 7. Peter says, we, are, we as saints are supposed to be casting our anxieties upon him uh, because he cares for you. 
you would not cast your anxieties upon an impatient God that looks at you like, okay, you're on thin ice right now. No. The kind of God that we can cast our anxieties on is a caring, loving, patient Father, one that loves us and comes down to our, our space to love us without compromising his holiness. He is still holy, but he is able to be before us because of Christ's sacrifice. Um, you'll hear me quote this a lot, uh, just in regular life. Exodus uh, chapter 34, verse 6, this is this phrasing you'll hear repeated over and over through Scripture, but this is the first place that it's said. It's God introducing himself to Moses, and he introduces himself by his character. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the character of God. <clears throat> and we are not used to that kind of love. It makes sense that we would try to change it and we would try to alter the character of God because we're used to something else. This is very unusual. This holy love that God has for us is, is kind of alien to us. That's not the kind of love that we experience in the world. What kind of love does the world have for us? The world does not have, have patience for us. When we are going through... Uh, uh, times of addiction or abuse or depression or any of those kind of things, the world doesn't feel like waiting on us to get better. They want us to get better on our own and then come back and rejoin them. Um, they don't have patience for times when we just don't know if we can go on, when we feel deep shame and anger uh, with, with ourselves and with others. They want us to figure it out and get better and then come back to them. But that's not the kind of love that God has. Uh, the world out there, and even our natural hearts, has one objective, and that objective is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. Just maximize pleasure and minimize pain. If it's painful, I run away. I'm going to go find something pleasurable to go and occupy myself with. That's what we want to do. But that doesn't align with the way that God loves. Imagine if God loved that way, never would have gone to the cross, never would have become a man, right? So this, this newer way, this, this way that God wants us to live, it's going to be difficult and it's going to take work because it's not natural to us. That's okay for us to say the natural way that we want to live is we want to consume, we want to grasp, we want to clutch, we want to be selfish. Uh, Matt talked about the kind of heart that we're supposed to have, a you before me heart. Uh, the natural one is the opposite. It's a me before you. I'll figure me out. We'll get to you later, right? And we will not drift toward this, right? So we are not uh, washed around in a sea of ungodliness, and one day we're just going to wash up on a beach of holiness and think, oh, wow, amazing. How did that happen? We are on an island of unrighteousness, and we are trying to fight against the tide to get to the holiness of God. It will take work. It is unnatural for us. But that is the call. That is what we're called to. So holiness is both a who we are and is a what we do. And what we do, we don't do it alone. We do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So now that we've covered the things that we do want to practice, the things that we say yes to, I want to cover for a moment the things that we don't do. That is a big part of who we are as Christians. Um, we say yes to love. 
We say yes to generosity. We say yes to self-sacrifice, to imitating the character of God. But we are in a world that is full of unrighteousness. There are a lot of opportunities to sin, and we are surrounded by things that are outside the character of God. So let's look at this next verse. Verses 3 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That word inheritance has to do with family, God is our father. If God is not our father, we don't expect to inherit anything from him. Correct? These people that are listed here, uh, God is not their father. And it is sad. Um, And this is a tough passage of scripture. It's tough for us because this, this right here is an area where our culture clashes with the church. It clashes with us. But I would like to point out for a moment that that list there, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, covetousness doesn't seem to match in that list. It doesn't seem related. Um, But I'd like to point out that it is uh, related, that these things go together. It's not a random list. It is different to us, but it's very consistent with the rest of Scripture to group these kind of things, to not divide them. If you look in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 11, or in Hosea 4, or look really all over the prophets, God goes after his people on the basis of money, sex, and power over and over and over again. Idolatry related to all three of those things. He is not biased. He doesn't pick a favorite. They are all abhorrent to him, right? In the modern world, if you talk to someone from a more conservative circle, they really want to confront sexual ethics. They want to protect the family, and those things are important. But we don't so much want to talk about money. It's not as much of an issue. There's not really a big need to regulate or to reform things. If you go talk to people that run in more liberal circles, they'll want to talk about regulating financial institutions. It's important that we want to work for equity and make sure that powerless people are not taken advantage of by powerful people and rich people. But on the issue of sex and sexual freedom, we don't want any regulation. We don't want laws that govern what I do with my body or who I do it with, right? We divide these things up, but I want to point out that God does not divide these issues, and neither should we. This is why it's so dangerous for us as Christians to try engaging in this modern American political system, because whichever side we pick, we're going to be compromising God's values in one way or in another way. And it's not that we sit somewhere in the middle of these two parties, it's that we sit somewhere outside of it. We are too conservative for the right. and We are too liberal for the left. So our view is supposed to be outside of it. We're not going to find a home somewhere in this system. However, whatever's happening out there on a global scale, we are always going to have work to do here. Like no matter if it goes far right out there or if it goes far left out there, that's not going to change what happens in this room, in this church, in this people, in these gospel traits that we have. We'll always be this and there will always be work for us to do. So with that, let's talk about our commitment to holiness. Let's talk about the way that God calls us to holiness in these two main areas. 
<clears throat> so when it comes to sex and sexual ethics, uh, I'm going to keep it PG, but, uh, but we want to imitate the heart of God. It's very simple. Christians are often accused of having a negative view of sex uh, when it comes to things like this because we treat it uh, narrowly and exclusively. Uh, the church would not be described as sex positive to the rest of the world. However, sex is a creation of God. He does value it. He loves it, and he has a purpose for it. He has a very clear purpose for this gift of sex. And so protecting it is not a negative thing. In fact, it's because God cares very much about this gift of sex that he protects it in his law. He's built in protections as commandments to us. I'll put it this way. If you had a precious, priceless piece of art and you, you said that you cared very much about it, would it be loving of you to display it at a very public bus station? Just to put it out there, no glass, no velvet ropes, no security. It's for everyone because it's beautiful and we love it, and people ought to see it and should enjoy it. Um, would that be caring, though? Would that be loving of us? It wouldn't. It would be more loving, in fact, to put it in a museum, to put it in a climate-controlled environment, put glass around it, put ropes around it in security, for it to be enjoyed, but in the proper way, and handled with white gloves and care, right? It, I'm not saying that the world has no sexual ethic because they do. The modern world has tried to invent its own sexual ethic in place of God's. And I would like to talk about that for a moment. This contrasting view that God's holy way is very different from the sexual ethic of the world. So, yeah. Let's talk about the world's sexual ethic. Uh, I read recently an opinion column in the Washington Post uh, from an author named Christine Emba. She's a Princeton grad. Uh, she wrote an essay, this was back in March, and the headline was, Consent is Not Enough. We Need a New Sexual Ethic. I agree. That sounds great. And the more and more I read, the more and more I found that I agreed with. She has a lot of criticism, in fact, for, uh, for the sexual ethic of the world when it comes to pornography. Pornography, she says that when men and women engage in this, this awful, poisonous thing, they bring it back into the bedroom and those practices, they harm us. They harm people, specifically their dignity and their humanity. Uh, it objectifies people. She says that's wrong. I agree with that. Uh, she says that the rampant use of dating apps and casual hookups has commodified people and turned them into a swipe, another swipe. And then when you're with a specific person, you can't help but continue to objectify them and think about them as another swipe. And maybe there's a more interesting swipe ahead of you. Uh, she says that's wrong, and I agree. She says that the biggest problem in the world's sexual ethic is that we've oversimplified sex down to consent alone. If it's two consenting adults, anything goes. Who am I to argue, right? Um, but she says that's wrong. I agree, that is wrong. Uh, she says, quote, making the standard of consent, our, full, our sole criterion for good sex, punts the question, punts on the question of how to conduct a relationship that affirms our fundamental personhood and human dignity. She said, okay, consent, but what about our fundamental personhood? What about our human dignity? And 
I'm glad to, to hear that this person this I'm using to represent the world, uh, that she sees that the current system is not enough. She sees the problems, she sees the holes, and she's not alone. A lot of people have just withdrawn from sex in general, especially young people, uh, so much so that the Atlantic calls it a sex recession. And looking at the data, uh, young people especially have been engaging in sex less and less since the 90s, that every year it has gone down and down and down. Uh, so we're looking, the world is looking for a new sexual ethic, something different, something better, something deeper. And Emba here is in looking for this new sexual ethic. She lands on the idea of love, but she wants to define love. She wants to get specific and she lands on the definition that was coined by someone we may be familiar with. Thomas Aquinas is a 13th century philosopher and Catholic theologian. He defined love as willing the good of the other, willing the good of the other. <clears throat> that might sound familiar too. It's kind of a paraphrase of what Matt has been saying in the marriage talks here, that it's about you before me. They're right there next to each other. It's the same idea. It's a gospel-centered idea of love. And so even though I may be encouraged by the world seeing the problems in the sexual ethics that they have, uh, that they're practicing. Um, and, and it just verifies for me that God has placed the truth in our hearts. She's getting close, but she's already got the house built and she's trying to put a foundation underneath it. And we can't do that. We have what God has designed already. So let's, let's just talk about that. Sex as described by God is a sacrament meaning that it is an outward expression of a spiritual and invisible reality, right? So for a man and woman in the covenant of marriage, it is a sacrament that is uh, an outward expression of an invisible truth. It's like communion or it's like baptism. You wouldn't uh, get baptized if the spiritual invisible truth hadn't already been verified in your life and you wouldn't take communion if you had not already been saved, that these things are just not for you. Sex is different though because sex is not related to our, uh, our salvation the way that these other two things are. And it's not necessary to live. It's not necessary to the Christian life. It is perfectly normal to live your entire life uh, without engaging in this sacrament of sex. That is fine. Paul didn't do it, and Jesus didn't do it, and he's the most fulfilled person to have lived. So you don't have to. It's fine. Um, but if you were going to, the foundation of married Christian sex is a covenant. It's a covenantial commitment of trust and of vulnerability between you and your spouse. There's a giving up of oneself that we saw just in verse two of the scripture we're going over today that is modeled by Jesus. And he says, you before me, not me before you, you before me. And when we enter into that covenant of marriage, it makes you spiritually vulnerable and spiritually naked and exposed before this other person, before you've taken your clothes off. It shows your commitment to their good. I'm here for you. I'm here for your good, right? And without this commitment of marriage before, whatever sex you engage in has no foundation. And the relationship that you're trying to build then has no structural integrity. And the entire relationship is compromised from there. You'll see the cracks appear. You may be physically naked, but you still have your spiritual clothes on 
and you're not seeking their good, you're seeking your own, your personal gratification. It is a me before you relationship. And even if you do engage in this, but then you try to fix it and then get married, you will still be repairing that weakened foundation for the rest of your lives, believe me. And I'm not saying all this to make a checklist of, of good marriage to say that like, you know, you gotta do this before this, before this, before this, and then there'll be no sin and no problems. It's not true. Because even in a committed heterosexual marriage, there is still room for sexual immorality and impurity, right? Because we're two sinners getting together. We're both going through sanctification day after day after day. Of course we're going to have problems. Of course we're gonna have uh, problems and sin that we need to repent of in our relationship. We gotta get good and get practiced at repenting, not just to God, but to our spouse for the things that happen within that marriage. So we don't get, get off scot-free because we've tried to obey the rules. Uh, we all, all of us have work to do in this area. God wants to change everyone's hearts, not just our actions, not just what we do with our hands or in the bed or anything. He wants to change our hearts. The natural heart, like we said, that was consuming and it's grasping and clutching, he wants to change that to an outward-facing heart, one that is generous, one that is self-sacrificial, one that is giving, and like we said, one that wills the good of the other, that says you before me. We need to do all of that. It's commanded right there in the first verse to be imitators of God as beloved children. So that was example one. Let's look at example two in the scripture, the area of covetousness. In the area of finances, we need to imitate the heart of God. So we understand what this word means, covetousness. Covetousness, it means greed, and it means selfish desire, right? This sin is another one that feels natural to our sinful flesh. In the world, there are scarce resources. We work very hard to acquire those scarce resources. We want to take care of ourselves, we want to take care of our families, and if we have some left over, then we'll help you at the end, if there's some. I saw another article recently um, this was on marketplace.org. The headline was, one-third of people earning $250,000 or more are living paycheck to paycheck. One-third of those people making that much money. And they go on to say that there's varying definitions of that term, paycheck to paycheck. But I, I don't care. That sounds weird. I, that doesn't make sense to me. If you're at that income level, I feel like that's got to take care of all those problems, and you should have something left over. Anyway, uh, but I, I understand that you slide into that, that it is a gradual change, that you put your kid into a nicer school, and then you get a slightly better house, and then you get a slightly nicer car, and then you get slightly nicer clothes, and that none of those things that I named are sins. If you've done those things, good. I'm happy that you are helping your family. Um, but they're not, necessary, they're not necessary for survival, and we are going to naturally slide into them a bit. So what do we do? Uh, when we read the Bible, we tend to think of coveting as wanting something that's just outside of our reach, wanting our neighbor's things. I want that, and I want to I take it. Um, but what if everything's in our reach? What if I can go down to Aaron's right now and rent to own 
a living room set. Don't go to Aaron's. Uh, what if I, what what if I just go and finance the thing? I get the, you know the zero down, zero percent interest financing for 36 months or something, and I can have the thing now. I can have it. We need a guiding principle. Tim Keller, who you may know, he described covetousness this way for us modern American people, that it is living just as well as your income allows. If there's money, I can spend it on me. If there's money and it's within my means, then I'm going to spend it on me. And that's the way that the world operates. That's the principle that the world operates on, that they will always put a good or a service or a gadget in front of us for us to consume. We're called consumers because they're counting on our hearts having that inclination to consume, to grasp, to take, to destroy, and they're just playing into that heart. That shouldn't work on us as Christians. This gospel trait, that should not work on us because we have a different kind of heart. We don't have that heart anymore, one that is consuming and grasping and taking. Ours is an outward-facing heart, God's heart. And God's heart is one that is generous and kind, right? If we want to be holy, who are we supposed to imitate? God. And what is God like? God is generous. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as it said there in the scripture. When it came time for Jesus to be generous and to save his people, he didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all, right? This is a principle that we apply to our finances. When we, right by the tithe box, we say, we give because God gave first. We're giving the way that he gave, okay? And I'm not going to turn this into a seminar on how to, how to talk about finances. I've only got so much time. Um, but there are a lot of places in the Bible that talk about stewardship and that talk about generosity. But all of those places all come from the same heart that God has given us. It begins here with a heart that wants to imitate God. It's about who we aim to please. So real quick, I'll just give you the very quick version of application. It's about stewardship. So do you have a budget? If yes, cool. If not, make one. If you do have a budget, is there a line item on that budget for benevolence and for generosity? If there's not, make it. And if so, good. Um, if you have that line item and you've set that money aside, who have you blessed with it? Who have you given that to? Who have you uh, invested in their life? Or what, what cause have you invested in with that? That's something that we need to consider. And if we can't find those people because we're going from work to the store to home and then back to work again, and we stay in this loop and we can't find those people, we're going to have to get outside of our loop a little bit. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to, because this whole conversation is one that Maya and I had this week. Um, I'm preaching this to myself. We're all going to do it together and we're going to get creative, but this is the call of the scripture. Don't practice covetousness to be generous and to be generous on purpose, right? And all of these things, while they're telling us no, they are also inviting us into something better. All of this is an invitation into something better. So let's look at verse four now. <clears throat> Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So I'm not going to dwell on this for very long because it's the same principle that we talked about for sexual immorality and covetousness. Uh, but this one as well, it's the same. 
our humor and the kind of talk that comes out of our mouths comes from a heart. And it can come from a heart like the world that says me before you, that objectifies other people and just makes jokes at their expense. Or it's a you before me. And we can still be funny, but without hurting other people, by being generous to people. Not only that, but when he says don't do these things, he gives you a substitute right there. He says, let there be thanksgiving, right? That's the new heart that God gave to us. So just for a moment, um, just think for a moment. Like, since we can't do, we can't put a lot of this stuff into practice, Thanksgiving we can put into practice right now. Why don't we take a second and think of three, four, five things that we can be thankful for right now, ways that God has invisibly blessed us in our lives that he has really that, that, that's worth looking at, one that's commanded for us to look at, right? What, what can we be thankful for right now? Just take a moment and think about it. And we don't just want to do this one time, not right now. We want to do this regularly, every day. Every day we ought to practice this kind of thanksgiving. And we don't just want it to be a dutiful practice. We want it to be a rhythm that comes straight from our hearts, one that is generous and kind and good. So in closing, there are a lot of lists in the Bible that I could have gone to to talk about our holiness and our behavior. Um, but uh, you guys are going to encounter those without me, and I'm going to encounter them without you. This week, tomorrow, when we pick up our Bible, we will see commands from God um, ways that we can start to demonstrate these properties. Um, my aim today is just to give you one guiding principle, a guiding principle so that when you encounter those lists, you will respond with the right heart. And your heart ought to say in those moments when you encounter those lists that I want to imitate my Father God, right? We probably don't want to obey someone else's dad, not because we don't care about them, but because we don't share love and trust with them, right? I don't, like, you, we haven't shared anything together. I don't know that you are out for my good. I don't know that you love me, and I don't particularly trust you. But God is our Father. Like I said, this is a property that unites all of us as born-again Christians, that if God is my Father, when I come upon those uh, commandments, even if they're very difficult, I'll be able to trust him. Even if it's very difficult for me to lay those things down and it feels unnatural even to do those things, I will think, I know he's out for my good. I know he loves me. I know he's patient with me, right? And therefore I will obey them. That very last part of scripture, or part of the scripture today uh, in verse eight, walk as children of light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world, or in, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Walk as children of light, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So don't wait for God to show up to you with a commandment to go, okay, I think I might obey that one. This is saying try to discern on your own what is pleasing to the Lord. Seek him out. Ask him what he wants. Try to get the mind of God, the heart of God, and say, I don't know if I have the same values as you. Let me check. 
Let me open up my Bible and find out. Find the places where I think they're difficult and then try to work on me to become more of the heart of God that says you before me. But all of this stuff that we're trying to do, I want us to remember that safety net that's built beneath us, right? The one that says that we are holy right now. And our holiness and our purity does not rest in our actions and the good things that we do. So when we look at people outside outside the church, people outside of uh, the family of God, we don't look at them and judge them and say, uh, you're not holy the way that you're supposed to be. They haven't met God yet. They don't know his grace. They're not operating out of the same heart that we are because they haven't been loved before the way that we've been loved. We have to keep that in mind. And for us, remember that our purity and our holiness rests in him. So when we have a bad day, a real bad day, we don't get crushed and think, I failed, I did the wrong thing. We run straight to God. We don't have a heart that runs and hides the way that Adam and Eve did. We have a heart that is like Micah that runs straight into his throne room and says, God, I sinned, help me. Help me now, I have anxieties, I have problems, I have fears and anger, please help me with them. That's the kind of heart that we should have. And it rests not in our work, but it rests in the finished work of Christ and not in us. I'm gonna pray. Father God, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you that in all these very difficult commandments that you give to us, Lord, you don't leave us alone in them. Uh, Lord, we, we do have a hard time with these things. We sin and we fall short, even though we've been loved and it really, that's not the way that loved people act. Loved people are supposed to love. We're supposed to love the way that you do. Um, but Lord, you've given us hope. Hope that you're patient with us and you're kind. You are a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you will by no means clear the guilty. Um, but Lord, that no longer means us. Now your wrath has been poured out on your son on our behalf. We take communion. We're going to be thinking about that. God, thank you for what you've done. Please help us. Send your Holy Spirit to empower us in this walk. Empower us in trying to obey as best we can, pursuing your holiness, knowing that we are already counted as holy. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.